I just think, I just think what it was was the adjustments. It was no adjustments. It was no adjustments that was made. He, it was either come forward and work him out or nothing. He did. He just didn't show no adjustments. You know what I mean, no need for the disrespect, none of that. Great performance by Bud Crawford. Earl just ain't had it. And, and, and we really got it done, man. Bud, Bud Crawford was very, very composed. Very composed. He kept his composure the whole fight. Did you see him in the corner, nice and relaxed, breathing, listening to his team, going out there and getting it done? Me, there wasn't no faints, none of that. After the first round, it was like, all right, let's get to it. But Bud wasn't giving him what he wanted. He wasn't there. Showing good angles, touching that body. And did you notice every time he hit him in the body, he knocked him off balance? I think Bud do got his number. You know what I mean? Bud is, is a student of the game, and you obviously can see that. Coming out fighting Southpaw, I, th I think that, that really made the difference. And welcome back to the number one podcast in the number one sport on the planet right now. The sport where. I was one from two in my picks in one of the greatest weeks of boxing we've had in recent years. Um, yeah, I think a week ago I kind of said this would be a great week in boxing and it didn't disappoint. It's given us clarity in terms of pound for pound if you want to buy into that. But we now know we've got two superstars in Naoe Inoue and Terence Crawford. Two guys who are like, I'll fight anybody. I'll go up. Whatever you want me to do, I'm willing to do. Contrast that with the heavyweights where it's just become a balance sheet exercise. You know, how much revenue can we get this year? Um, how much can we fleece the public for? Fights that don't happen, this, that, and the third. In contrast, we've had such a fantastic week. And the irony of it is this has been a week that hasn't had Eddie Hearn piping up. A week that hasn't had Tyson Fury piping up. A week that hasn't had... IFL all up in your timeline, all up in the media, trying to sell tickets to a live show no one's going to go to. You know, this has just been a week of greatness, blighted a bit by the Conor Ben thing, but we don't care. This has just been a week where we haven't had to listen to the usual clowns. You know, We've been able to concentrate, zero in on people who take the sport seriously. Let's celebrate that. Let's celebrate the fact that in the biggest week of boxing, probably since Mayweather-Pacquiao, I'm, I'm only, uh, let me exclude Mayweather-McGregor just for obvious reasons. But in the biggest week of boxing since Mayweather-Pacquiao, we haven't had the usual clowns you know, draining the energy from it. So we've all kind of woken up on a Sunday and we've said, wow, that's why, that's why the sport's special. That's why the sport can deliver when you've got people willing to make it magical. And when you take the clowns out of it, this is what, you know, I think this is what generally tends to happen. So I want to talk about... Spence Crawford, I really do. But before I do, I, I want to touch on some of the reactions and some of the takes I've seen online from, from people. Um, and I call these guys the village idiots. Most of them are American, ironically. Uh, not many Brits are of that leaning. It tends to be the people who don't interact with the sport very often. And someone's just told them to watch boxing for one night and then they'll come up with these idiotic takes. So they broadly fall into three categories right um category one is the scumbag and so the scumbag is the sort of person who says i'm glad errol spence got beaten into next week right for no reason right for absolutely no reason i'm glad he got beat and it's almost like you've just said that for attention you know nothing about the sport but you've said yeah i'm glad he got beat and it's just that kind of malice but then they're the sort they're the same sort of people who complain that they've been made redundant. They'll be there on Facebook. I can't believe I've been made redundant after 15 years. We don't jump in the comments and go, oh, I'm glad you're broke. I'm glad you're going to lose your, your house, your family and everything. We don't say that. We say, chin up, mate. Can I help in any way? Let me share this post for my network. That's what we do because that's humanity. The way you treat the aftermath of Spence Crawford is not to, to laugh and to gloat at someone's suffering. It's to say, guys, thank you. Honestly, thank you for putting this all on the line, knowing full well that it was potentially disaster for whoever lost this because the stakes are so high. Thanks for being brave enough 
to put yourself in that position. We respect you. That is the only acceptable response. The other category are, uh, whatever you want to call them, open brackets, experts and everything, close brackets. So the guys who are like, yeah, Crawford really outclassed Errol Spence. And you're like, at that level, you don't outclass people. Mayweather didn't outclass Pacquiao. He beat him because someone had to win, someone had to lose. That's kind of how we get our payoff in these situations. Crawford beat Spence, but you can tweak a few variables one way or the other, and Spence could beat Crawford. This isn't a situation where you go, well, if they fought 100 times, Crawford would win 100. I don't believe that to be true for a second. I think there are clear things that Spence could have worked on. I th- you know, we'll talk about it later, and you'll see. Like once you start to look at the picture, you can understand why the fight went the way it did. But no one was outclassed. I use the example of this: if you if you say that at the elite level there are a thousand units of ability, talent, whatever you want to call it, what you saw on Saturday was nine hundred ninety-four versus nine hundred ninety-five. Like most of us might be on about 400, 500. We saw 994 play 995 and 995 won. That's not being outclassed. That is just losing to the better man. And that doesn't take away from Crawford at all, by the way. But it tells you Errol Spence was top five pound for pound. And nobody disputed that. I don't want anyone tweeting me going, yeah, I never thought it. Never saw the, never saw the magic in Spence. Or, don't. Don't embarrass yourself. And so those guys are almost like the village idiots, but, you know, they sit on their sanctimonious positions going, yeah, well, he was outclassed. It's like, well, you don't even understand the dynamics of the fight to say he was outclassed. You know, you, you just saw the bits that got you excited because deep down, you were that kid at school who was always in the circle when the fights were happening, just never in the middle. And that's okay. Just as long as you know who and what you are and that, the people who participate in whatever form, people who put it out there or put it on the line are the ones that count. And then the third ones are the girlfriends. The Crawford girlfriends, the Spence girlfriends, whoever they are, you can see them on Twitter. The less said about these guys, the better. Um, I say, look, go out into the real world, make some friends, take up a sport, take up a hobby, make some friends, be liked for who and what you are and stop clowning for attention. That's all I'd say on that. But broadly speaking, there's some of the really terrible takes I've seen online. But I also want to praise some of the more nuanced and smarter takes, both in the media and just on social media. There's just people who understand what this game is and that two men put it on the line and there had to be a winner and a loser for us to, to really digest this weekend for the week to end on a high. And end on a high it did. I thought both men were gracious this packaged up so beautifully um, between Al Heyman and Bob Arum. Man, we just, we, we, we had a glimpse of what we imagined boxing should be like every year. So let's, let's just toast to that, you know. And now we can spin it back to the Reggie. So now let's just spin it back to our, our regularly scheduled podcast. When I think of this fight and I think of the outcomes and the aftermath of this fight, I come back to the central idea that I stand by. You have to take a loss in life. And you have to take a loss in the thing that you love. I think you do, right? And I look at all the greats. You know, Ali took L's. Like, fight of the century, Ali lost to Frazier. Came back a different man. You know, climbed the mountain again and became great. Mayweather, 1996 Olympics, robbed of a gold medal, potentially. And look at what he went on to achieve. Manny Pacquiao. You know, those early defeats. The fact that he was malnourished for much of his life, so boxing was a nightmare for him, and he boxed massively under his natural weight because he was malnourished. And look at what he went on to become. And then you look at someone like Crawford. Um, If I remember correctly, Crawford lost to Saddam Ali to qualify for the 2008 Olympics. And who knows what Crawford would have become. Because remember, Crawford's got amateur wins 
over who's who. Guys like Danny Garcia, um, he might have even gone against someone like a Magdaleno. He he has good wins as an amateur. Crawford was a really good amateur who probably should have gone to the Olympics on a, on ability, but in the box off, he was voted against. And like Floyd in 96, those things can make you or break you. But not long after that, don't forget, that's when he got shot. And that's when he rebooted his lifestyle. And it was like, I can choose the street, so I can choose the ring. And he would have probably been brilliant at both. He might not be alive now in one of them. But he used that to fuel his success. Mayweather used it to fuel his success. Pacquiao used it to fuel his success. I tend to find that the people who have it handed to them are the ones that struggle later on. Uh... Oscar was a golden boy for ages. It was always between Oscar De La Hoya and Shane Mosley for who the, the best amateur of California would be, right? It was always between those two. So they were seen as golden children. Um, and look what happened when it got tough for both of them. They, they struggled. And much like those two, Errol Spence was the golden boy of American boxing. If, if you've listened to me for long enough, I've told the story of when Spence came to the UK in 2009 and he fought Dudley O'Shaughnessy. And at the time, in terms of like boxing in the southeast or maybe even the south of England, Dudley O'Shaughnessy was the name. That was the kid who was going to go to 2012 and do incredible things, right? That was the guy. Um, you had that. He was a name. Liam Cameron was a name back then. There was, there was just a, there was a group of names of people, even like Anthony Fowler was bubbling through around this time as well. And Errol Spence came to the UK. I think he boxed twice against Dudley O'Shaughnessy, handled him easily, and people were talking about this kid Spence. And in America, he was the one, right? That was the guy, 2012, he should do something, which he, he didn't. But he's always been that kid that people have said he will go far. So he's never had that chip on his shoulder of, oh, they don't believe in me? I'll show them. Whereas Crawford has. So these two men have got to this point through very different routes. And that's why people criticize Crawford's resume because it hasn't been crafted the way that Spencer's has been crafted, the way that Jerome Ennis's CV is being crafted, Virgil Ortiz's CV is being crafted, the way they tried to craft Anthony Joshua's CV. He hasn't had that. He's had to go the, the Dillian White route, the Tyson Fury route, the, I don't even know, the George Groves route. He's, Crawford had to go that, that kind of round-the-way route to get to a point where he could even be talked about in these categories. And he's had to do it, I don't want to say the hard way in terms of opposition, but he's had to do it the hard way in terms of the investment put into him based on his ability. You know, people have been saying Crawford's special for a while. Um, I'd always been like, uh, uh, uh. the record doesn't suggest it, but his talent does. I've always been of that view that his talent's incredible. We haven't seen it tested based on his record. We have now, by the way, but that was always my view back then. And it slowly matured because I became more and more of a Crawford fan as I saw him as a boxer. I saw him as a man. There you go. Full confession right there. So that's what you had here. You had two guys who've kind of got to this mountaintop via two very, very different routes. You know, the Spence route wasn't easy, but it was well managed. And the Crawford route was a bit wilder, a bit more uh, bumpy, rocky, messy. But he got there by taking care of everyone put in front of him and doing it with relative ease. Damn, at this point, I should, should actually talk about the fight, right? So best to share what I saw. Uh, I love this fight because everything was on a knife edge. And like I sort of break the fight into three stages. There's, the, there's, there's phase one where Crawford just has to get Spence under control, right? And it's more, uh, he had to let Spence know he was the man in that ring. That's what he had to do. This is kind of like, you know, taming a bucking bronco. And then there was a point where Crawford was like, I need to show him there are levels to this. And then there's a third phase, which is just the end game of how am I gonna take how am I gonna take Errol Spence out? Now that I've established phase one and phase two, how do I execute phase three? 
I don't think there are any streams unless you pay for the pay-per-view. There are probably no streams up at the moment. But when you get a chance, just go and watch probably round one and round two. Because the fight was won and lost in those first two rounds. And I'll explain why. The question was always going to be who was going to establish jab dominance. I'm not buying this idea that Crawford's jab's harder than Spencer's. They're elite level guys. So their jabs are both elite level. So I'm not questioning that. The delivery of the jab is never the problem. From rank novice, white collar, no bouter, whatever, all the way through to Hall of Fame, all-time greats. The delivery of the jab is really the problem. It's almost overtaught in boxing. You learn to jab too much you know, to the point where it can limit you. What's unique is how you deal with the jab. That's what separated those men. On Saturday night, the difference was how they dealt with the jab. Terence Crawford's solution was simple. To deal with the Spence jab, I'm going to slide my back foot back and then sit on my back leg. So sit on his left leg. Which means I can allow the jab to come, and if it does connect with me, I'm going the direction of the force. It's not going to hurt. But in loading my back leg, I can come back with a straight left. If he's sloppy, if he's reckless, I can come back with a straight left. So I've got more to gain than I have to lose from that approach. And it means that my foot's still in range. My lead foot is still in range in case I want to leave a sweeping hook there. So I've got two options by sliding back on my back foot. If Spence rushes in, I can slide back, leave the check hook in there, catch him falling in. But this is Errol Spence. He's elite level. He's a bit cuter than that. So I might just come back with a straight left over his jab in the event that he doesn't bring his hand back quick enough. That's Crawford's initial strategy. He does other things as the fight progresses, but initially that's the strategy. There are variations of it which are, I'm just going to keep retreating, right? Sometimes I'm just going to keep retreating just so he doesn't get that confidence of a solid impact. Errol Spence, in contrast, says, to deal with the Crawford jab, I'm going to plant my feet and I'm going to use upper body movement to pull back. That's how I'm going to deal with the jab. I'm not going to use my hands as a defense, I might put my arm in the way every so often, but it's really me just leaning back, but my feet are stuck to the ground, right? When I coach kids, or anyone, I always think of defense in three levels, distance, position, and protection. The easiest one to execute is distance. If I'm not there to be hit, you're going to waste your time. Position is a bit more complex, because it's like, I'm kind of there to, to be hit technically, but because of where I position my head or where I position myself, it's a little bit harder and high risk for you. And then there's just protection, which is I'm not going to move. I'm just going to put whatever I can between your fists and my face. Could be a shoulder, could be a forearm, could be a glove. Right? They're the three dimensions of defense. People can talk about multi-fate. Just shut up. They're the three elements of defense. If you can manage those in a fight, you're normally good. Crawford opted for defense. Yeah. And Spence opted for position and protection. Crawford's one worked brilliantly because Spence loves to steam in with his jab. And so that distance meant that Crawford could watch what he does and work out what the best response was, which he did later on. The issue with Spence's situation was Crawford rarely attacks in single shots. So by the time you've pulled all the way back, when Crawford comes with a second shot, you're so off balance that there's nothing you can do apart from take it. And very early on, that was a signal that Spence gave Crawford. You're not going to have to worry about me being too mobile for you. I'm going to be right here to be hit. You've just got to work out what shots are going to connect with me. And Crawford went, all right then, cool. <laughs> if this is what we're going to do, then let's do this. And you could see from the beginning they had Spence scouted out because... Crawford was putting shots in places where Spence was going. And I'm like, they've really broken him down and said, what does he do in different situations? And they were, they were super prepared for this. I can't say the same for 
Errol Spence because had he been so, he would have learned from the Cal Brook fight. If someone's got the speed and the timing on you, man, you're going to have to get on your bike, make them overcommit. If nothing else, feign. You draw, you draw the shot you know they're trying to hit you with, but you're prepared for it, so you're out the way. Draw that. So that's the story of round one. The story of round one is who's going to establish jab supremacy. Round two, things kind of get flipped on their head. So the central part of round two is a knockdown. And the knockdown is everything I've just talked about. Right? Spence goes to jab low. Crawford, seeing that, gets his arms between the fist and his body, pulls out to the left, so his weight's on his back leg. Spence misses with the jab because of Crawford's movement. But it gives a perfect angle for the straight left for Crawford to throw. He's already loaded, so he just has to release the shot. There's no real power required. He can just release that shot from where he is. And so he throws the straight left, which connects. And as Spence is rising up, because obviously he's jabbed low, and as he's rising up, he's realized, I'm in a bad spot. But he thinks he's just going to get picked off with a counter left. Crawford, being the boxer he is, it's like, let me just throw one extra in there, ace and viz. And fires off a jab. And it was reminiscent of Pete Kovalev. I don't know if you remember, like you'd watch Kovalev at his best. And Kovalev would throw a jab right hand. And from that right hand, he'd transition into a jab. But then it became almost like a backhand because of where it started from. And Crawford's done something similar here. And he's caught Spence rising. So Spence can't anchor his energy into the ground to absorb the shot. He's going up with it. Bang. Knockdown. So that does two things. At that point there, it says to Spence, oh, I'm in the hole already. Even if I won round one, it doesn't matter. I am behind now against one of the best guys in the world. For Crawford, it said, the plan's working. Yeah? And you watch Crawford all through the fight. This is one thing I loved about it. He boxed as tall as he could. Where you saw Spence jabbing low and rolling and trying to do things from a relatively low position. Spence would regularly give up his height. Crawford never did. He never gave up his height. He never gave up his shape. That enabled him to throw shots like this. Because he could have a proper look. At everything that was going on. And he was so so calm. In the eye of the storm. That he was able to pick these shots out. And people talk about Crawford's powers unreal. I don't think it's necessarily the power. It's the, it's the thought process. He knows what to throw and where. Like, he's making good decisions. So that round two, at that point, it's like do or die. That's when you need your trainer to be like, right, the stuff that we thought would work isn't working. We've got a plan B. I'd speculate that they gambled on Crawford boxing as an orthodox fighter. They hadn't prepared for him as a southpaw because had they done so, they wouldn't be getting picked off with these shots. They wouldn't have. If you go back and watch where Errol Spence finds himself, he finds himself in decent positions if you're fighting an orthodox fighter. They're really good positions for him to be in. Against a fellow southpaw, they're horrible positions to be in. And maybe Crawford got some intel, I don't know, that they were training for Crawford as an orthodox. Maybe he planted the seed, I have no idea. But it did not look like Errol Spence had prepared for a high-quality southpaw like Crawford. And I'm going to illustrate the point like this. If Errol Spence had thrown that low jab to Crawford before he got dropped and moved out to his right, which is kind of where the energy was taking him, if he had just moved out to his right-hand side like you would have done and kept low as he moved out to his right, he'd have been golden. Nothing would have landed on him. It was the fact that he went back to his left, upright. You know, that's the equivalent of an orthodox guy just moving on to his opponent's right hand. Like, why would you do that? And so a heavy price was paid because of that lack of preparation, the detail, the precision in what you're doing, because Spencer's never had to do that. You know, Spencer's always been able to impose himself physically on his opponents. And maybe with the exception of Sean Porter, which is quite bumpy, but he's generally been able to do so. 
And this time he wasn't. Crawford just wasn't letting him get any kind of edge, any kind of foothold in the fight. In the clinches, Crawford showed that he was stronger. We don't give enough credit to Crawford's strength, actually. If it, I don't even think like gym numbers would do Crawford's strength justice. It, how do you explain it? I remember ages ago, I was seeing I was seeing a woman. She was from Haiti. Her family were Haitian, and like when you met the relatives, they didn't look massive, right? They're not like it's not like you're in front of Ronnie Coleman. They were big enough to look athletic, but all freakishly dense and freakishly strong like she was too people you can't just you can't just move them around and Crawford seems to have that kind of that strength where he's just got ridiculous levels of stability and then based on that stability he can just generate force um I think you're born with that you can train it to maximize it 100% but I think what he's got he was born with and you saw that. You've seen that against everyone. Everyone assumes they're going to be bigger and stronger than Crawford till they try and wrestle with him and they go, ah, uh, yeah, he's a different breed. So as we, as we look into that first third of the fight, you know, we've seen the knockdown. We get to like round four, partway through round five. And what's the theme? The theme is discipline and consistency. Crawford doesn't sacrifice his plan. He's already got the knockdown. So he's like, I can keep doing this. I'm landing. And at this point, he switches up. So before, he was countering the jab with, with a backhand, right? And then he goes, actually, let me jab with him. And then it was like, let me not just jab with him, but let me, let me jab multiple times. Let me, let, some, let me let some combinations go. Let me hit him two or three times to see how he reacts. Because he's realized now that Spence isn't going to defend with his feet. So he knows that the target's going to be there. He knows that Spence is going to sacrifice his height at some point. So he knows he can leave some shots downstairs. He's, he's figured all of this out. And credit to him for being able to do so. A lot of guys don't. Kel Brook didn't. If Kel Brook had actually done that, you know I mean, history might be different now. But it's that discipline and consistency. Because, let me be honest, a lot of the stuff that Spence was doing wrong, Crawford would do wrong as well. But he'd pull himself out of it pretty quick. He'd go, oh, don't do that again. Spence wouldn't. And that's what I mean about the gap isn't that much between them. It was the discipline and consistency. It's not ability because Spence was doing a lot of the right things. Ah, if anyone can tweet this, what round was it where Spence was throwing the jab and almost had an overhand left? And it's caught Crawford kind of in the neck ear area. And you see Crawford just go, whoo. The first time he felt the Spence power, he goes, and he has to hold on for a bit. And then he gets straight back at it. And that's another Crawford gift. When you hurt him, he comes back. You know, he, whatever gear you want to jump into, he'll match you. Oh, you want to go up there? Oh, cool. Let's do that. Let's do that. But you can see, like, you get to round five and you're like, Crawford's in control here. Not by much, because all it would have taken was a lapse. There was just no lapse. His eyes were locked in. His spirit was locked in. Um, his corner were locked in. They kept him on track, unlike what was happening in Spencer's corner. He's locked in, tracked, focused. And he's, he's breaking down Errol Spence now. And he's basically shutting down all Spencer's options. And you can see Spence going, what can I do now? And so, periodically, Spence would just throw heavy leather and see what connected, which was probably his most effective tactic of the evening. But I think what was frustrating Spence was, because no one's ever done it to him before, where you, you counter with a backhand, but finish with a straight right. Like Crawford was doing. He wasn't always finishing with a right hook. Sometimes it was just that straight right. And Spence couldn't get a read on it, because I don't think he'd prepared for that. So these shots are, are sapping Spencer's morale. And like I said to you before, when the kid's been the golden boy for so long and he's been told that he is the one, it's hard to find somewhere in your experience that is similar. Like, when have I been in this position before? Where are the dark places I've had to inhabit before to pull myself out? Whereas Crawford has had to. He had to do it against Gamboa, for example. He's had to pull himself out of situations where there's a guy with a bit more talent than he's got. He's had to put himself out of situations with like a Sean Porter, who a guy who's incredibly physical. Crawford has done that. 
I don't think Spence has had to do that very often. Definitely not from a a real losing position. So now Spence is like, oh, this is all alien to me. I'm not prepared for this. And you can see it in his body language and it's getting more and more desperate throughout the fight. And he gets around six. And you're almost looking for, you're saying, right, if Crawford just goes through the gears and lets about six shots go, he could stop this. Spencer's face is swelling up. Uh, it's not looking pleasant. Uh, he, he's looking like he did when the Lamborghini flipped over. And I don't say that with any pride, but it is. And you're like, oh my God. This, this, part of me was thinking this might be the end of Errol Spencer's career because he was just retreating into himself. And you're looking at Crawford like, take him out, take him out. But then Crawford's almost like, I might just let the balloon deflate naturally. I might just, might just beat him into submission. You know, let me just keep beating him up. Let me just keep putting these knuckles in his face and let me see where that gets me. Because I can do that. I'm in so much control now. I mean, it's, how do you put it? It's like a shark. So once a shark bites you, it will let you bleed. The shark is that you bleed to death. It knows that it's hit the right parts of your anatomy and goes, yeah. I mean, you got a couple of chomps in there. You ain't going to last long. And the shark will just kind of follow you. So you stop moving. Then it's like, right, time to eat. And that's what the fight felt like on Saturday night. And like this mid-game bit was ultra impressive because Crawford said, I'm going to stay on the inside now. I'm I'm not going to retreat like I was before. I'm going to stay on the inside. I'm going to counter you. Every time you do something, I'm going to counter because I've realized you're loose. Like Spence does these odd things. Like he'll go from having his guard up, right? So his hands are protecting his face. And when he pulls back, he leaves his hands and pulls his face away. So if you throw a long hook, all of a sudden he's not protected. And this happened a few times. And this is that lack of just fundamentals, really. Just, you just have no fundamentals when you do that. But Crawford on the inside, he showed that there's nothing, there's no weak links here. Because if you go back, Spence was able to break Kell Brook down by going on the inside. Because he goes, right, I, ain't got the, I can't get a read on Kell Brook. And I can't get my shots off before Kell. I'm just going to walk him down. We're going to do this on the inside. And I'm going to let my hands go. And Crawford said, ah, <laughs> I've seen that tape too. I'm prepared. Kept catching him. Kept catching him. And like I said, Crawford's like, I can do this all night till round 12 or until almost like he wanted to make him do a Kell Brook and just drop to a knee and say, I'm done. Don't know if that was the plan, but it felt like I said earlier, it felt like he was just letting him sort of bleed out before, before just sort of gorging on the feast. So we get to round seven and by round seven, Crawford's got this under control. Um, he's been boxing on the inside. Uh, he's doing all of that classic reflex work. You know, as soon as he feels a shot on the arm or the elbow, comes straight back with the counter, bang, bang. And Spencer's like, this has never happened to me before. It's happened in, in, in sort of patches. Guys like Garcia and Thurman can do it periodically, but not this consistent, not at this level, where Spence couldn't get a foothold. And then you get to uh, round seven, first knockdown, Savage. You know, Spence goes in again low, doesn't need to be that low, but goes in low. And remember, all through the fight, Spence hasn't cut the ring off on Crawford once. He's just followed him. Same again. Uh, Crawford slips out to his right-hand side, just throws an uppercut in there. As Spence is throwing a big overhand left at him, just throws his right uppercut in, drops him. And now you're like, God, this, this can't go much longer. Spence's face is battered. He's bleeding from the lip. And Derek James doesn't seem to have any solutions to this. Spencer's like, I don't know what's happening. Um, second knockdown. Uh, middle of the ring. I always think middle of the ring knockdowns are impressive because, you know, you don't have the rope as your friend. Double right hook. Bang, bang. Knock Spence from the middle of the ring right, right out to the ropes. But at that point, you're like, <sighs> because that was at the end, right? That was at the end of the round. And if that, Derek James could have said he's had enough. Could have protected his guy. But I don't think that's how this fight should have ended. I like the fact that Spence was allowed to go out on his shield. Round eight was just a beatdown. And this is why I'm saying we can't call it outclassing someone. 
you were just better on the day. Like, I could name three tweaks that could have happened and that could have made Spence a far more challenging opponent because I think Spence can box anyway. But we're going to come on to some of the things we do need to consider when evaluating this fight. But the, the, the punches he was taking around eight, I'd have the towel in my hand at that point. Because if you care about someone, you don't want them to take these and you don't know if it's doing real physiological damage at that point because we know what Spence has been through. You know, reconstructions and all this sort of stuff and a guy like Crawford will test those reconstruction skills. But what I love about Crawford when he smells blood in a finish is how he just suffocates you. No space. Anywhere you go, he's just right in front of you. His hands are moving. He's ready. As soon as he sees the opening, bang, he's in there. And remember, he's nearly 36 years old and his reflexes are still sharp as anything. He still looks looked like he's still at the top of his game without a shadow of a doubt. And I'm just glad it wasn't allowed to go any further than that. The ref showed mercy and we had a new undisputed king at 147. And he's undisputed not because he unified all four belts, because he didn't. Spence did. Uh, Crawford just got three belts. But he's undisputed because he's top of the tree. He beat the best guy. So he's undisputed. I'm quite happy to take because I don't think there's an argument against it. I don't think you can say, well, he didn't fight so-and-so. He did. He fought all the people he needed to. And in beating Spence, he sort of solved all of those problems. So when guys like Keith Thurman say, Crawford's never beat me, oh God, stop. Please just stop. But you can imagine if there isn't going to be an immediate rematch, then you can imagine someone like Thurman piping up and fighting Crawford's just so Crawford can complete the set and a Danny Garcia too. It'll be really interesting to see if all of these guys just move to 154 because there's money to be made in this kind of round robin. If they all just keep fighting each other, there's loads of money to be made. And then it frees up the belts for the young guys to do their thing. But let me just summarize what I think Crawford got right. And he got it right pretty quick. He sussed out that Spence's jab was slower than his. He sussed out that Spence gives up height when he throws his jab and he can only throw his jab going forward. He sussed out that under pressure, Spence can't retreat with his feet. Um, what else did he suss out? Doesn't really cut the ring off, follows. There's, there's, all of these little elements come through, right? And when you're watching Crawford, you can see him calculating these in his head. Because he tests something and then he tests it again. Like inside fighting, can Spence box on the inside? Nope, keep doing it. Perfect. You know, does he move his head a lot in defense? No. Does he move his head when coming forward? No. Leave some landmines there for him to walk into. Perfect. And all of these things are things Crawford did well. And it's a sign of a good camp when you do that. Because it says someone scouted Errol Spence. And someone broke down Errol Spence into manageable chunks that they were able to work through in camp. So you've got to give Crawford the credit. You've got to say, right, where, where does this place Crawford? So let's just talk about the post-Mayweather era. Because I think if we talk about great welterweights, it's Mayweather and Pacquiao. Um, and then you've got to go all the way back to, um, I would even put, I'll put Corey Spinks in there because he put the belts together. And then, but for the great, great, greats, you've got to go all the way back to like your Sugar Ray Leonard's. And you're going back nearly 40 years. Because when people talk about the, the Four Kings, they'd all moved up in weight by the time the Four Kings became something. So it's kind of Duran Leonard, 1980 to 81. And then you sort of move through. And you've got guys like uh, Don Curry before he lost to Lloyd Hunnigan. Um, and then, you know, he's another standout. Was Meldrick a standout at Welter? Don't know. And you keep going through these lists, but these aren't standout names where you're like, you cleaned up in an era where it was super competitive. Crawford did. Mayweather cleaned up when he had to and he dealt with everyone he had to. So there's a cutoff point for me when we look at Crawford and we go, in terms of Crawford being the man, he's the man of this era. And my test of who the competition is, you have to have beaten Sean Porter. Yeah. To be in contention for the best welterweight since Mayweather, you have to have beaten Sean Porter. I know people say, oh, what about Pacquiao? That, 
No, not off that Thurman win. And not off the Broner win. So, for me, you have to have beaten Sean Porter because there, there are eras in which Sean Porter would have held multiple world titles simultaneously. There are times when you could say that. So, if we look at that, people who have beaten Sean Porter, Kel Brook, Keith Thurman, I think, uh, Spence, Crawford. So, the discussion is between those four of who's the man. And Spence beat Crawford. Crawford beat Spence, sorry. God, I can't believe I just said that. Crawford beat Spence, so that puts him top of the tree because the other guys don't have an argument. Um, and in terms of record, it's probably in that order, right? It's probably Spence, Crawford, Spence, Thurman, Brooke, if you want to look at it from a CV perspective. You want to look at it as, as pure talent? Like, they're the, the highest point they ever achieved? then it's probably Crawford Brook for me. Crawford Brook, Spence Thurman, if I'm being honest. And that's going to be contentious, but like I keep saying, look at what Crawford did to uh, Spence. Then look at what Brook did to Spence while he could hold out. That was incredible work. And then look at what Spence couldn't do to Crawford and look at what Brook could do to Crawford although they couldn't sustain it. And so my argument is they couldn't sustain it. But if we just look at just raw talent, those things are important. But if you say who's the man post-Mayweather, without a doubt it's Terence Crawford. I don't think there's a debate around that. But now you say, okay, where does he fit in amongst the welterweights historically? <laughs> I'm going to leave that to you guys. You already know that Mayweather's top of my tree in so many different ways. I can't see past him, but other people will have other arguments for other reasons. On a side note, I know people are going to go, oh, what about Ricky Hatton? No, don't mention Ricky Hatton in any of these discussions, please. Please don't do that. But yeah, I think, I think Crawford is the man at World War. I think Crawford is the man in boxing. Full stop. Yeah, full stop. People wanted to say Usyk for a long time, but Usyk's in a weight division where he's not stopping anyone. So we can't give him that. You can outbox people. Crawford can outbox people. But you've got to be stopping people. In no way stops people. People that he shouldn't be stopping. People who are bigger than him. Craw Crawford's doing it. He, I mean, he's done it. He's doing it. So those, those guys are up there, out there somewhere. And we should give them their, their roses while we can. But I do, I think, in boxing right now, Terence Crawford is the man. Which then brings us to Errol Spence. And what do you say about Spence? Is Spence still... Is he still part of that pound-for-pound pound discussion? On CV, yes, because you've only lost to Crawford, and we've just established Crawford is miles ahead of everyone not called Inoue. But I've got a question, man. What was the effect of that car crash on Errol Spence in terms of his physiology and overall, like, is he the same Errol Spence he was before that accident, physically and mentally? I find it really uncomfortable listening to Errol Spence talk. I found it really uncomfortable looking at him and for how drained he, he looked. He looked like someone who had been in an accident. And I wonder how much physical damage the accident did to him because, yeah, there was just something not right there and I can't put my finger on it. And it's not like I'm looking for excuses because, quite frankly, I'm happy Crawford won. But the empathetic side of me goes, what did that really take out of him? Maybe we'll never know. Maybe we'll never know. But you get in that kind of crash, there's got to be a degree of trauma attached to it and you know, all that sort of stuff. Because then you ask the question, is that his lifestyle catching up to him? We know Spence was a heavy drinker. He was known for partying a lot in Dallas. You know, the crowd of people he associated with probably weren't the best for him. And how many times have you seen Spence in an interview? And you know he's drunk. Does that catch up? Because we talked earlier about consistency and discipline. Crawford is the, the model of that. Because even if he does drink, we don't see it. We do with Spence. And I always wonder, is that lifestyle catching up? Is that what shortens careers? Because it seemed to with Hatton. It seemed to with De La Hoya. Things that shorten careers. Womanizing, drinking, all that sort of stuff that Spence has been outed for in public. Was that catching up with him?
would the Spence of, I don't know, five years ago have been a more dangerous prospect? Don't know, don't care. But it's a warning to all these young fighters. You can't have it always. You can't be the party animal out on the scene and then expect to be top of the mountain. Ricky Hatton tried it and failed. You know, I mean, look, look, at, look at the people who messed him up. It's people like Mayweather, Pacquiao, guys who have reputations for being monastic when it comes to preparing for a fight. So there's a lesson. And I, I don't understand why people try and, try and live both sides. I just don't get it. Now, let's, let's deal with the elephant in the room. And I think I'm going to talk about this in multiple dimensions. Do we now have to start asking questions of Derek James the same way we did of Virgil Hunter? So, remember, Derek James has had Errol Spence since he was a kid. And I, I say this numerous times. You give me someone for 15 or 20 years, if I can't make you a world champion, then I'm useless. So that is enough time to teach someone everything you know about boxing. And if you know the right stuff, then they should be able to execute that stuff. Now, I look at Derek James. And remember, like this guy was trainer of the year. He was flavor of the month. And everyone was talking about how his gym was buzzing. But the numbers were manageable. You look at that gym now, right? And you go just, just off top. Anthony Joshua, Jamel Charlo, Errol Spence, Ryan Garcia, Frank Martin. And then all the kind of celebrity and PT stuff that Derek James does. My question is this. Did he get a full camp? And if he did, how? Because we know uh, Crawford has been training for this fight probably since the beginning of the year, if not the end of last year. Crawford said in the press conference he did a pre-camp before he did this camp. So let's just say he did a 10-week camp for this and a four-week pre-camp. That's 14 weeks. So he's already into like February, March time when he started. I'm confident Crawford started before that. Like in terms of the work, they probably did the scouting and the prep work earlier. So this has been half a year for Crawford. And Bomac and so forth. And yes, they've had Shakur, but Shakur's not in do or die fights yet. We forget that. No one in the Bomac camp is in a do-or-die fight apart from Crawford. So all resources zero in on Crawford. Right? Now let's look at Derek James's gym. You had Joshua boxing in, whenever it was, uh, April. Was it April 1st? So there's a camp that leads up to that that Joshua was part of, right? And then Joshua went straight, wasn't around long, went straight back into camp for Dillian White. So, when did Errol Spence get that one-to-one time? When did Errol Spence get that, that quality time? When did Derek James have time to really study Crawford? This feels like a camp where it might have been a bit chaotic because we've seen the videos of Joshua getting time. You know, is Spence getting the same time he used to get with Derek James? That's my question. And if he's not, is that what had an effect as well? Because people don't want to address that elephant in the room Some, when you've got people who he's got three people in his gym who've held at least three world titles simultaneously you know each of them's got an ego big enough to say I should be the man in this gym was it a mistake recruiting Joshua was it a mistake getting Ryan Garcia in it it feels that way because I don't believe you can spread the quality that far like it's not like Derek's got that really wide network like Ronnie Shields would have because Ronnie's been in the game a lot longer. So he can bring someone in to help him out. Where he goes, look, I've got too many guys at the moment. I need help. Because look at Derek James now. You've had Frank Martin fight not long ago. Now he's had Errol Spence fight Crawford. He should be in London by the time you listen to this for Joshua versus Dillian. Who's training Jamel Charlo? So who's training Jamel Charlo for Canelo right now? It's not Derek James. So it looks like there's a problem in that, in that whole situation because you're not getting the Derek James time you're used to if you're one of the originals. And now, if you're one of the new guys, you're probably still not getting the time you're used to with your, with your old trainer. So I think there's a real issue with that. And I, th- I can't believe that didn't have an effect on Errol Spence. People are going to ask the question, was, was making weight an issue? But hey, look, if Derek James isn't around, maybe it is an issue. Um, but... The reality of it is, 
you got to fight the way you agreed. So there's no hiding place from that. But it does pose a question. Is there a better version of Errol Spence at 152 pounds? Is there a better version of Errol Spence at 154 pounds? And I, I say that because if you look at Tommy Hearns, Tommy Hearns was more destructive at 154 than he was at 147. But weirdly enough, as he moved up the waist, he became less destructive because, you know, obviously you're dealing with bigger beasts up there. But at 154, he was imperious. He was putting people to sleep for fun because he was allowed to, to eat a bit more, grow a bit more, uh, probably hold a bit more water, intramuscular water, all that sort of stuff that's important in performance. And Maybe there's a better version of Spence, but then the, the same could be true for Crawford. Is Crawford an absolute savage at 152? If the rematch happens, I have a feeling we'll find out, but I can't see the fight going any other way unless there are fundamental changes to Errol Spence as things stand. I just don't see it. But isn't that crazy that we've talked about one fight and we're about 50-something minutes into a podcast? That's when you know you've had a good week in boxing. Like, I, I, I'm not going to lie. This has been, you know what I mean, full grift mode for me. You know, you've got to make the most of it when, when we get action this good. But that's what I'd say. I'd say massive respect to Terence Crawford, unlucky to Errol Spence. I don't think the gap between them is that great. I think... Now that Spence has had that pain, it's, it's an incentive to up the training. It's an incentive to, to demand more because now you're like, there's another level I can reach. Now he's got to challenge himself to reach that level. And if he does, then it's a more compelling fight for Crawford. If he doesn't, then he might want to consider retiring. But maybe this defeat is the one that Spence needed in order to make the changes that have probably been on his mind for a while. Because as I said earlier, I think having Joshua in the camp has been disruptive. That's just my theory. Um, yeah, just my theory. I think it's been super disruptive because he's hogging up a lot of time. Like, why the hell is he fighting in April and August? Like, that's hogging up a lot of Derek James's time. And like I said, who's going to be training Jamel Charlo? And then afterwards, if they're saying Joshua's going to fight in December or January, when's the rematch going to happen with Crawford? So I think there's some tough decisions that need to be made in, down in Dallas. But, hey, I'm not paid to make those decisions, so good luck to the guys involved. And on that note, let me tap out and say, if you've enjoyed this as always, please share, um, tweet, Insta, Facebook, all that good stuff. You know, if you can, jump on the the Highfield Boxing Facebook page. You know, I don't think people use Facebook anymore. Unfortunately, I wish they did. And, oh God, I don't know when I'll record again. Just to set expectations, I don't think I'll do anything on, on the Conor Ben stuff. Just because I think, you know, when boxing's been this good to us, let's not dwell on the nonsense. Take care, guys. Mm -hmm.